0: Hey everybody, welcome to episode two of The Ascent of Board Games. Uh, I am one of your many hosts, Brian Schoner, and I am joined by...
1: Joe Streaky. Jason Warend. Mike Kodab Haft.
2: And Frank Branham, the archivist.
0: Yes. We're all going to get exciting code names later. It'll, it'll be awesome. So today, we are here to talk about one versus many games. When you have one player who is trying to do a particular thing and the other players are collectively trying to keep them from doing that thing and or do something else before the first person does their thing. Now, this covers a lot of ground. There are certainly some elements that we're going to cut out. For instance, there is (coughs) a whole genre of games uh, that we're sort of collectively referring to as dungeon crawls, where one player is the, the dungeon master and is running the bad guys while the other players are heroes, going in and trying to defeat them. That covers things like Descent, and Catacombs, and uh, Star Wars Imperial Assault. There's a whole series of games along those lines, and, and that's really another episode unto itself, so we're going to kind of skip those today.
2: And we are so doing that episode. Oh, yes.
0: <laughs> oh, yes. There will be more.
2: This is talking
0: about games where you've got one person who is, who is diametrically opposed to the rest of the players working together. We did a lot of research on this one, and when I say we, I mostly mean Jason, uh, and discovered some some interesting, surprisingly early precursors to what we think of as, as the modern, uh, you know, board game. So, Jason, you want to start us off with
1: the game of deerstalking? <laughs> sure, sure. So, uh, Deerstalker, uh, created by question mark, no idea who, who actually made that, but uh, started in 1835. Uh, essentially, it's a single sheet of paper, one player takes on the role of the deer, um, and the other players are playing the roles of sportsmen, I think is what they're actually called in the rules. Because five... deer murderers just doesn't sound as good. I mean, that's the sequel, I think. <laughs> um, but there's five of the sportsmen, and there's the one deer. Um, they have different wind conditions. Uh, the, the deer is trying to escape to the mountains, which is at the top of the sheet, and the sportsmen are trying to essentially corral the deer into specific locations on the, on the, on the sheet. I believe it was uh, at some houses on the actual picture, uh, it's a fairly simple game, unsurprisingly, since it's from 1835. But it did allow for some variation, right? So the the people that movement was handled by going from dot to dot. Uh, that was for both the sportsman and the deer. However, the deer did have one special ability where it could cross a single spot of water on the uh, on the map via a dotted line. The sportsman would have to go around it.
3: Well, and even though none of us have have played this game. Just by looking at it, it, it's and reading over the directions, it's amazing because you can see, even in uh, 1835, that all of those ideas that we find in modern day one verse mini games and in hidden movement games are there, which is just kind of mind blowing to think about.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's not so much hidden movement because, you know, the hunters know where the deer is. But still, you've got the sort of same kind of group of people trying to surround the target that we see in a lot of these later games. Um, this isn't necessarily strictly a one versus many games, because in theory one person could play all the hunters. And that's going to be true of a number of the games we talk about. But basically, um, it, it is the first example we could find that really fits you know, what we're thinking of as a, as a one versus many game.
2: And the game itself is kind of descended from bag Chai or Fox and Geese, which dates back to maybe 1,000. Uh, I mean, this is a traditional game where a whole bunch of guys go after one. Uh, it's just the first time where someone suggested that, that the hunters needed to be split up among people.
0: And then... As far as the 20th century goes, I think we have another early example from Frank's uh, ridiculously large collection. Yeah,
2: probably a better patient zero would be Mr. Ree the Fireside Detective. Uh, again, uncredited designer, 1937 from Selchow and Reiter. They actually published this at least three times, 1937, 1946, and 1957. This is interesting. It casts one person as a detective, and everyone else is basically kind of working together. set up a crime and just confuse the daylights out of the detective I found a reference to a 1920s late 20s party game called Crime which as best I can tell was played among New York socialites at least these books dropped names uh, throughout the vicious circle uh, in most of the text but anyway when they made Crime into a board game Mr. Ree basically has a lot of elements of Clue but again that's about four or five years before Clue. Uh, Mr. Re, as a detective wanders around the board, occasionally stopping people who are carrying weapons. The other players uh, are basically passing cards to each other. At some point, someone's going to have one of the specific four murder cards and the matching weapon, which goes inside their little pawn, and then they can pass a card to another player to declare that oh, they're murdered. Dun, dun, dun. And at that point, the detective has 10 minutes to start questioning all the people at the table. Only the murderer is allowed to lie. Everyone else must tell the truth.
0: So it's sort of a party board game deduction thing.
2: Yeah, not really deduction because it's mostly how well the uh, the participants, non-detectives, non are able to cover their tracks and confuse the issue. Interesting.
0: I... I... I don't know quite uh, how to feel about that. I'd, I'd, I'd like to see it played sometime just to see, see what's going on. We have a copy <laughs> here, so... Uh, Two copies. Yeah. Oh, God. Two copies,
4: excuse me. Two different editions. Yeah, All right, well,
0: because we're nothing if not thorough here. Um, so, yeah, interesting. Interesting. You know, while there were certainly some others along this vein in the intervening years, I think the next sort of big, well-known one uh, was a little number called Escape from Colditz. That one came out in 1973 from, from Gibson Games in the UK. And it's interesting because the designer, a guy by the name of Pat Reed, was actually uh, a prisoner of war in World War II who escaped from Colditz. So he, he knows the area quite well.
2: The other designer was one of the screenwriters of Barbarella, just in case you wanted to see your Jane Fonda, that is, that is Dino DeLorence's movie.
0: That is a beautiful piece of <laughs> trivia you got in there. So, yeah, basically, um, you have one player who is the German security officer and a group of other uh, players who are are the escape officers, each representing a different country. So you have someone who's trying to get the British prisoners out and someone who's trying to get the French prisoners out. And you had to uh, go around and basically try and collect an escape kit uh, by visiting locations or, or using various cards to
3: get what you needed to get out. Right. And this is uh, this is Joe's favorite kind of cooperative game um, as all of the players who are the prisoners have to work together in order to escape. But the winner is going to be the one who gets two of their three escapees out first. And they just sort of
0: wave goodbye to the other countries
4: and say, "So long, suckers." I do love games where you can win better. It's one of my favorite mechanics.
0: Note to listeners: the preceding comment was sarcasm and should not be considered Joe Streaky's actual opinion.
2: So when you actually play Colditz, though. There's kind of an implied total agreement um, because everyone hates the Germans so (laughs) very much. Well,
3: sure. Just on a side note to our German listeners, we love you.
2: And in Kolditz, there really is no way to win by yourself. You absolutely have to basically work together slightly to open up enough to get started. And so there's a tacit agreement that's definitely there. Right.
4: It's just, it's a weird balance sometimes of like, hey, I want to help all of us win together, but hey, maybe if I make this suboptimal move, I can win better than my opponents. But obviously, hey, it might put us in danger of not winning at all, which is bad. It's an interesting balance.
2: Yeah, and Kulditz, it's actually stilted a bit toward the Germans.
3: Um, it's pretty easy to shut them down sometimes
4: yeah. <laughs> sure.
2: without that agreement.
3: And I think as we move into more of these modern examples of this, I mean, definitely one of the biggest flaws with 1v mini games is that balance between who has the easier time of winning, the one or the many. Yeah.
0: And one of the nice things I I think a lot of the games as we start talking about these and, and sort of game design has evolved is most of them will include things like, If you find that the single player is having too easy a time, here are some things you can do to make it harder for them or easier for the other players, and vice versa.
2: Yeah, I mean, when you go back that far, the idea of win conditions is actually a little vague. Uh, Both Cold It's a Mystery are kind of, yay, you win. Mystery, in particular, just basically says whether Detective wins or loses. It doesn't even say that the other players get to win. The detective loses
0: yeah it's, it's less about winning and more about the experience it's about the journey <laughs> so the next uh sort of big uh and i think the first really successful mass market one versus many games is scotland yard uh which is a 1983 game originally published by Ravensburger. um it was uh designed by a number of uh german folks whose whose names i'm probably going to horribly mispronounce Um, and in fact, I'm just going to refer you to the geek because there's too many of them. We only have a limited amount of time in the podcast, but the premise is basically one person is playing Mr. X who is moving around uh, a map of London in secret. He's recording the locations that he is at at any given time. And the other players are detectives who are moving at first somewhat randomly around the city, trying to sort of stumble on his trail or figure out where he might be periodically mr x is required to reveal his location you know he says okay this turn i'm at at spot 73 or whatever it might be uh and then the detectives are basically racing to hem him in and surround him there are are the various movement tokens that the detectives can use to use buses and, and the tube and that sort of thing to get around town faster but when they use them they go to mr x so he can
3: use those later to to escape better I think one of the big things that this adds in here is that hidden movement mechanic. Um, Just taking that little bit, that tiny piece of information away from the mini, it makes for a, a much more interesting game dynamic in that it really makes the players who are on the mini side feel like they're having to use not only the skills provided in the game, but also kind of their logic thinking to narrow down the routes that Mr. X can take.
2: Although the Scotland Yard didn't come up with the hidden movement mechanic. A lot of the play of uh, Scotland Yard comes from an older 1979 Parker Brothers game called Stop Thief, which uh, got a recent reissue. Literally, at the basics, if you took Stop Thief and ripped the computer out and made it a player and then made it much more of a gamer's deduction game, it, that's kind of what happened in Scotland Yard.
4: So to be honest, whenever I think of Scotland Yard, I think of Mr. Jack, which I think is like the simplified, hey, it was one of the, it was one of the first hidden, it was the first hidden induction, hidden movement game I ever played. So like, it is the, it is the, it is just, it hit me at that right time in my board gaming career. Where I was like, oh, well, this is just a game I think of now whenever I think of this specific kind of game.
3: And now Mr. Jack is the two-pire version, right? <clears throat>
0: it's a two player game it's i wouldn't yeah. call it a version of this
4: no no it's not but it has a it has some it it clearly intentionally hints at this game in a bunch of different ways right.
0: although if i recall correctly with mr jack the movement isn't actually hidden the characters are all visible on the board you just don't know which one mr jack correct. is
4: right correct but whenever i think uh, like it it this mr jack definitely references this game in a variety of ways right the setting is obviously very similar. And
2: a ton of games reference Scotland Yard. I mean, there are perhaps four or five different editions. New York Chase. Yeah, uh, and... there was
0: Mr. X, which was set in Europe uh, rather than just in London. Um, there's And there's a lot of other expansions of the theme that we'll talk about later in this podcast. But it's definitely, you know, it was the first big successful one. Uh, it won the Spiel des Jahres for that year. And again, it wasn't the first hidden movement game. There were certainly a lot of war games that used a kind of fog of war mechanic for which you needed a referee or something like that to tell you where the other players' armies were. But as far as mass market board games go, this one really kind of broke that mechanic into the mainstream.
3: So did Scotland Yard, is, is this the first kind of mass market intentional implication of there is a player who is working against... Those other players using a movement mechanic? I think so. Probably, yeah.
2: Between the two times, you got a few murder games that mostly followed from the clue, mystery kind of structure. There was suspicion from 1970 that is almost a footnote. I couldn't find much on it, actually. Probably the next big mass market game was Milton Bradley's Fortress America. This was designed by the... uh, amazing Michael Gray, who gave us a bunch of Milton Bradley games like Carrier Strike, and was uncredited on so many games from all of our childhoods. But basically, this has a group of, uh, well, it has a very Red Dawn theme.
0: Wolverines!
2: (laughs) Yeah, with basically the enemies of the United States trying to conquer the the actual United States. But it's a, a kind of classic war game. It was in the Axis and Allies vein, with great pieces. Uh, but actually it's one of the most interesting. The game itself is fun, tricky, well balanced.
0: Yeah it, it's neat because you have the the three invading powers which are basically invading from Asia from Europe and from Central America. so the three non-Canada sides of the board, Canada apparently is just staying not involved. Um, and they all start with all of their forces on the board and more or less all the same amount of force. Uh, whereas the United States player starts with very limited military resources but builds up increasingly throughout the game. So it's a matter of sort of holding on to enough of your core cities until you can get enough strength to really start pushing people back.
2: Yeah, it's a little weird. Usually the attacking force has all the resources and not the defending force. So it's a big weird twist there for war games.
0: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, This was reissued a few years back. Um, and honestly, I only played the reissue once, and I remember not being super impressed by it. Um, I feel like they put a little bit of polish on it that it didn't particularly benefit from in an attempt to modernize it, but, uh, you know, the original is still solid. There's nothing super fancy about it. You, know, you move your your little plastic tanks, you your little plastic soldiers, and you roll some dice to see who gets blowed up, uh, but it was a fun game, and it was uh, certainly the first one-versus-many war game that, that I was exposed to. And it was a big Milton Bradley box, and those were always cool, even
1: when the games weren't very good. Totally. Yeah. Just a year later, we come to Fury of Dracula, designed by Stephen Hand and developed by, or, uh, released by Games Workshop.
0: Back when Games Workshop made board games. <laughs> so weird.
1: Exactly. This is kind of a, a riff off of Scotland Yard, where you have <laughs> the hidden movement mechanic for Dracula as he moves around uh, the European cities, and you have vampire hunters trying to track him down and kill him before he's able to create six new vampires. What they've kind of added to the mechanic is that now you have uh, a kind of a combat theme on top of this, right? The, the vampire hunters are gathering equipment and trying to find Dracula to do enough damage to him to defeat him. Uh, I believe in the original version of the game you, you had to do basically defeat him twice. I think he had like 12 hit points and once you drove him down to zero he had to try and flee back to Dracula's castle. And then you'd have to kill him all over again, but essentially the idea was you're trying to prevent him from creating those six vampires. Well,
4: and
3: I th- I think this adds a an endgame game of a sorts onto these uh, previous games that we've talked about. Whereas in Deer Hunt or Deer Stalker and Scotland Yard, you just have to corner or land on the the one space. In Fury of Dracula, you have to actually battle that one down.
0: Right. And there are certainly times in Fury of Dracula, like if it's at night and it's early in the game before the hunters have gotten some decent equipment, Dracula may just go ahead and jump one of the hunters, you know, and deliberately reveal his location and attack them. To, to get them weakened in the early game.
2: And Dracula leaves behind little presents, yeah, which is such a special occasion.
0: Yeah, every the way it goes, is basically he tracks the cities he travels through, and every time he leaves a city, he can leave an encounter there, which A, is a way for the hunters to find him, and B, makes their lives difficult when they find it.
4: Right, which makes an interesting challenge, because once you pick up on Dracula's trail, you need someone to go walk his trail backwards, trying to figure out if he left any presents for you that might cause him to score points or move him towards his victory conditions.
2: And uh, there are three editions of Fury of Dracula that have really, really messed with that concept of a trail over time. The first edition, it was much harder to figure out the trail. The second edition added a trail of cards so you could actually kind of figure out how far away Dracula was and as more of a callback to Scotland Yard. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, uh, Fantasy Flight redid it in 2005 and then reissued it again in 2015. And that third edition made some other changes to the day and night cycle, kind of streamlined the game in a lot of ways. Um, the components in the second and third editions are are really gorgeous. And I think each time they've really released the game, they've made it significantly better. The third edition is probably, spoiler alert, my favorite one versus many game.
4: Yeah, and like the the nice thing about all of them is they're... Unlike some of the earlier One vs. Mini games, this game is dripping with theme. And blood. Well, also blood. But blood is part of the theme. Sure. But, like, it is just, it is full of theme, right? Like, you know, there's, like, most board games have a story. But, like, this one, like, is a really well-known story. This one, like, all the components, the way they do things makes a lot of sense based on the story. And, the the way the mechanics all interweave together makes sense based on the story so like the theme really resonates in the game i feel like
3: well and they do a great job of weaving those two two things together Uh, one of my favorite examples of that is when dracula moves across water this mechanically hurts him but also gives the player who's playing as dracula a number of options to escape yeah you can cover a lot of ground but it is costly
1: I was just gonna mention it's the only game I've played where you can have Mina Harker get into a fist fight with Dracula. That is true. Which <laughs> that is, is true. Always awesome. it's now Always positive.
3: I will add the the one biggest improvement I think in the most recent edition is the removal of the the get-out-of-jail-free card that was included in the, I think, both of the first two Both printings. of the
0: previous edition. Yeah, basically, there is a card, and this is actually something I wanted to talk about, the way they use the card deck, because I'm sure it's been used in other games. I just can't think of any off the top of my head. Basically, there's a, a single deck of, of cards that have... Uh, vampire symbols on the back of some of them and hunter symbols like a cross on the back of the other and basically the players when they're investigating a city can choose to draw a card and they pull it from the bottom of the deck and if it's a cross card they get it and get whatever benefit it conveys and if it's a, a bat symbol they give it to Dracula and he gets it so there's a point where you really want to have those hunter cards early in the game because they do great things for helping you find where Dracula is but you know drawing the ones for the other way are, are also problematic and there was one like Mike was mentioning in in the first couple editions of the game that if you draw it it basically just says Dracula erases his trail and goes to any city on the board and starts again from there which th- there's been at least one game that that uh, several of us were involved in where um, I was playing Dracula and and the hunters were telling our friend Alex you know we don't really need any more cards I think we've got him narrowed down and he drew a card, and I fled to a distant corner of Europe and subsequently won the game. Um, so, yeah, that one's no longer in the, uh, the newest edition. And uh, while it was a lot of fun for me, I, I think it's an improvement to the game overall.
3: I, I believe there are a couple of second editions that also no longer have that card. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there, there may have been an accident.
4: But, like, all in all, it's, it's a really great game, and the, the way that all the mechanics interact together is, is really great. Absolutely. So next I think we should probably touch on Betrayal at House on the Hill um, released in 2004 by Avalon Hill Games there are a bunch of designers including Rod Daviau and Bill Glasgow um, and one of the things that it, I think is very interesting about House on the Hill is you all start as presumably you're all friends and you're just exploring this strange house that is kind of outlaid in a relatively random way with rooms all over the strange place at some point the game shifts to determine who, hey, what what hunt is occurring. Hey, maybe it's a vampire. Maybe it's a werewolf. Maybe the house is trying to eat you while it's come alive. And at that point, you determine who the betrayer is. And normally it is now all the players against that person. There are a couple of, scenarios where it might be hey everyone's against each other or maybe everyone is against the house in some weird way but normally it's there's one person who is the bad guy and everyone else is against them yeah and
3: i think the the thing that this does differently is it begins as a fully cooperative game and as you're exploring the house you are creating the map that the second half of the game will be played out in and yeah this calls back
2: to a game that was one of my favorite games from the mid 80s chill blackmore manor from 1985 uh, designed by troy denning and published by pesetter games chill had that kind of switch and chill you started out with a staged deck of events depending on which monster was the bad guy and your object was to basically find the one magic dingus that the bad guy was allergic to uh, and move it to the room where the bad guy was but along the uh, one person would be the minion and people would end up switching sides over the course of the game back and forth which uh Kind of got a little old. You almost wish that everyone had started out friends and maybe one somebody had gone evil, like in betrayal.
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting. And now I can't remember, it's been a long time since I played Blackborn Manor. Was the, the minion known at the start of the game? The minion
2: knew who the master was, knew everything at the beginning of the game. But did the other players know who the minion was? Totally. Okay. Yeah. It okay. was okay. all but, open, right. and okay. the minion starts as one person against many. So we got the rules in. <laughs> okay. I like it. But
0: yeah, there's there's definitely, you can see uh, a lot of that, that heritage in the genes of Betrayal at House on the Hill. Same sort of tile laying map set out in the, the one versus many concept.
1: And what makes it interesting, you know, even though at the beginning you're all playing cooperatively, you're also trying to make sure that not one person is running away with it in terms of getting the best items or, you know, having the best fighting capability because... At any point, they might change over, and you might have to take them them down.
0: Oh, great. Joe's got the magic spear and the armor. Oh, and he's a werewolf? Well, that's a problem.
3: Well, and so I think this is one of the biggest problems with this game, is it suffered from randomness. There would be... I I, I would argue that it reveled in randomness. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. But there there were definitely situations when that betrayal was revealed that the, the players just don't stand a chance, which is part of the fun. But it it really does not do anything to take care of its balance.
2: So, Betrayal has kind of a long and storied history that explains some of that. Uh, it started out in the mid-90s. Bruce Glasgow's is the original designer. He had it accepted by Avalon Hill. Um, and at that point, Avalon Hill worked with it for a while. Probably added a 36-page rulebook with paragraphs and numbers. But eventually... Didn't end up doing it. Sold it to Hasbro, where you picked up Rob Davio and some people working on it. Finally, Hasbro kind of ceded it to Wizards of the Coast. And some poor designer, I think that might have been Bill McQuillan, uh, got stuck with a three-week deadline and said, hey, we're publishing this for Halloween. Print it. And as a result, on that first edition, some of the quests don't even work. I mean... Some things in the player book don't match up with the monster book. Yeah, the, the first edition was,
0: was very flaky. The, the second edition is significantly better, though. Uh, but, yeah, there is a lot of random. If you haven't explored very far and you wind up in a werewolf in a three-room house, then you're going to have problems.
1: I'm sorry, Frank. With with your, your vast historical knowledge of this, can anything you know explain those terrible, terrible hit point stat trackers?
2: <laughs> no, no, no. Nothing. Uh, Although Thingiverse... Uh, there's like an entire page on those in Thingiverse for printing off separate replacements for those stupid stat trackers.
0: Yeah, three D printers are, are primarily, I think, used today to fix bad board game components.
3: <laughs> and and it's funny, right? Because even with the re release that um, who was it? Uh, Wizards of the Coast produced yeah. not that long ago, their first printing of that re release suffered from. Basically, a, a set of warped map tiles.
0: Well, yeah, and that's that's less bad design and just shipping issues, but it's mm-hmm. it, it it is a cursed game.
3: And yet, they also <laughs> still kept those same hip weight trackers. Like yeah. they they made it <laughs> they zero fixed effort so many other to things.
0: improve it. Yeah. yeah,
2: there's a little bit of ching money. People mm-hmm. are paying 150 dollars for this, yeah. uh, and but the real problem I mean, it's 54 games. That whole random thing is going to be the development is insane. You can't
4: make a game like that right so it's also worth mentioning the much more modern re-release kind of spiritual release i think perhaps appropriately a uh, betrayal of Baldur's gate which was released in 2017 by avalon hill games and wizards of the coast uh worked on by chris chris and mike merles and you know it it has a very similar feel to betrayal right you're instead of going through a house you're going through the city of Baldur's gate um so they functionally i think they removed the Betrayal of House on the Hill has three floors, and Betrayal of Baldur's Gate has the street level and the underground, so they have two levels. Um, but they did add player powers, right? So in the original game, right, you would select a pawn, and functionally, you'd be selecting the color of your pawn and not much else. Stats.
0: Your starting slightly stats are different.
4: Sliding stats are slightly yeah. different, um, but in Betrayal of Baldur's Gate, you have a starting power that you have the entirety of the game that that gives you some specific effect.
3: Though I do want to point out, they still have those same hit point counters. <laughs>
4: Let it go,
0: Mike.
3: Let at it this go. point, they're
4: just doing it on purpose. Now they
0: just hate you. Yep. Uh, one other thing I definitely want to mention is uh, coming out later this year, you guys may have recognized that Rob Davio, the designer of, of Betrayal at House on the Hill, uh, is also the guy who's responsible for a lot of the legacy games that have been coming out recently, and he is preparing a Betrayal Legacy. Uh, which sounds like it's going to be really interesting. You're going to basically be a family of professional haunted house investigators or whatever, and, you know, the, the game will follow them through the generations, and maybe the cursed dagger you got in game one will wind up being the thing that you need to kill the mummy in game six. So I'm, I'm really interested to see how that turns out.
2: And stay tuned for our legacy episode, which we know we're going to do. <laughs>
0: oh, yes. We have opinions. Next interesting innovation uh, on our list as far as the one-versus-many concept, uh, it was Nuns on the Run, uh, which is a 2010 release from Mayfair by uh, Frederick Morrison. And uh, it sort of turns the Scotland Yard-style hidden movement on its head. Uh, In Scotland Yard and the games like that, you have the one player who is moving around hidden locations and then the other players are visibly on the board trying to, to find them or pen them in. In Nuns on the Run... Um, the the one player, although it may be two, uh, are playing the abbess and the prioress uh, of a a you know Catholic school you know nunnery. Um, And they are moving around in public on the board trying to find the children who are all running around in recording secret movement. Uh, Each of the, uh, the schoolgirls is trying to get to a room to find a key, which opens another room, which gets the thing they most want, which may be a book of poetry or a chocolate cake or whatever it might be, and then get back to bed without getting caught. Um, it's a, a fun game. Uh, it's a little wonky in terms of line of sight. There are some areas where it's very difficult to see if, if a nun could see one of the children or not. So there's, there's a variety of tables you need to look in there. Um, but it's a, it's a fun game. Um, it, it is semi-cooperative in the sense that if enough of the children get caught, they're not out of the game, but enough children getting
3: caught will end the game and the nuns win. So semi co-op there. One of the interesting things it does is it, it has the two-verse-mini. So having the Abyss and the Prioress split up and be operated by different people, I think is a unique development in this few versus many genre. It, it can change that gameplay a lot. And I think that's mostly due to table talk, which is something we haven't really discussed yet. But, I mean, I feel like in these games... You're playing everything above board, and having discussions kind of away from the table is against the spirit of
4: the game. And sometimes against the specific rules of the game, depending on the game. Yeah,
0: there there are certainly a lot of times, uh, you know, when I've been Dracula and Fury of Dracula, and I'm listening very carefully to what the hunters are saying, and, and either they say, well, if he's going that way, there's no way we can catch him. He's like, well, I haven't gone that way, but maybe I will now. <laughs> so there's there's certainly a lot of value in that. The other thing that I think is neat about nuns on the run is that the Abbess and the Prioress are to some extent on rails. You know whenever they reach sort of the end point of one of their routes, they sort of choose a second one. You know I'm going from the, the Abbess's office to the library and I'm following the green path. And basically they will keep going on that green path. They have some control over their speed, but they, we know what route they're going to follow until they get there unless they see or hear something suspicious. Um, so the, the the school children players have a pretty good idea of where their pursuers will be, but not exact knowledge.
4: Yeah, the, the moment when the Prioress of the Abyss hears noise or sees someone and can go off script is the most terrifying point of the game. You're like, oh God, what are they going to do? And you know, previously they're on these specific rails, and so the player creativity of the player who's playing the Prioress and, and Abyss can't be utilized. But as soon as it can be, Hey, they might have seen someone, you know, in, you know, five or six squares in a direction, but they may be like, Well, I'm not gonna be able to catch that person. Let me go turn this corner, go walk into this hallway and see what I can see as well. Cause maybe there's something interesting there. And hey, there was someone who was hiding right there. It's like, Why did you show yourself so they could walk around the corner and come catch me, you total jerk.
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot of great moments of i I was fine, why did you make noise?
3: <laughs> yeah, the many the many can really mess each other up completely unintentionally and uh, that's even harder when you cannot communicate to that other player that hey i'm hiding in this hallway don't do it
4: and you know in some ways you kind of don't want to let you know you want someone else to you don't want someone else to screw you up but like your opponents do want someone to screw you up if you're about to win right they're like hey yeah great go off track it's like great
0: you want the other children to get caught up to a point right See, it's a nice balance.
4: Uh, I, I still don't understand why they haven't released a Harry Potter-themed version of this. It seems like it would print an it's infinite amount of, amount of money. money. I don't it's understand. Really, it, it's a good point.
3: So, uh, an interesting stop along the way is going to be in 2011's Tragedy Looper, which was published by Baccafire Fire Games. Um, do we actually have a designer on that one? Like...
0: Baccafire Fire is the, the name of the designer and the company, and... We don't
3: really know who they are. They may be an AI. Okay. Um, well, that would certainly make sense because this game is complex. Um, it It is a one versus mini game about time travel. Uh, the one is playing the story master who is setting up a series of events that need to be executed a certain number of times. The mini are playing... Uh, various people who can travel through time using one of three different methods Um, and this is all kind of wrapped in a very uh, anime-esque theming it is very Japanese
2: except for the Groundhog Day thing because it is (laughs) completely channeling Groundhog Day
3: yeah totally And, and what this game does interestingly is it has a very limited space of Things that can happen. And so every iteration of the game, the players get a or the mini get a little bit more information on what exactly the one is trying to achieve, Um, whether these two characters can't be in the same room together because one of them will murder the other or one of them can't uh, move in a specific direction because of the rules of the game that are only known to the one it, it does some really mind-bending things and it really steps up the deduction required for the mini to win
0: so basically what happens in the game, and, and this is a weird game to explain, but I'm going to do my best, is there is a, an initial scenario where we have a certain number of characters um, you know, in certain locations on the board. And there's only about four locations on the board. It's, it's a very compact setup. Uh, and the players can basically play their cards to move characters from one location or another and that sort of thing. And and once the players have all finished, then at the end of each day, which, which is a turn, if certain characters are in certain locations or other criteria are met, um, the, uh, the story master will basically say, okay, well, a murder has happened, you have failed, and then they reset everything back to the start of the first day and try again. And so a lot of the the early iterations are a matter of figuring out, well, did it happen because these two players were together? Was this person not supposed to be in this location? How do we prevent this in the future?
3: Yeah, and the the one is not really doing much in this game they have a set of cards that can interact with the characters just like the the mini do but really at a mechanical level the one and the mini are using the same set of actions
4: the big difference is that the one is the person who set up the scenario to begin with
3: yeah they have all of the information
0: yeah, they're kind of in a classical DD sense. They're the Dungeon Master. They know what's supposed to happen and are reacting to what the other players do.
2: And the players actually spend some time hampering. They have a lot of ways of hindering what cards, what actions the one can take, um, which is the bulk of their game. Yeah,
0: yeah. So it's it's certainly odd. Um, I don't think it was helped by the initial English translation, which was not always easy to parse um you know as, as you may have gathered i i still don't think i could adequately explain what the game is about but
3: it's cool and, and that rule book is a tough one it is uh i think this is one of those games that is better played with somebody who's already played it being the one. Oh yes um but that's definitely a limitation
1: of the game yeah i watched a number of videos trying to parse it because i've never actually played the game and I I can't explain it either. (laughs)
4: You're like, I watched 13 different groups play it, and I still have no idea what was going on.
1: Yeah, we screwed up our rules on our first
2: two plays, and it is a game that is extremely fragile because of how much hidden information the one has. So there's so much responsibility on the one to get things right.
4: Yeah, if it breaks down, it... It
1: breaks hard. So moving on from, uh, I guess, anime to slasher flicks, uh, the next big uh, <laughs> innovation probably came from a game called Last Friday in 2016, uh, created by uh, Antonio Ferrara by Pendragon Games. Essentially, you're, you're trying to recreate the, uh, the Friday the 13th movies. Uh, one player is playing the maniac, who's kind of this uh, almost unkillable uh, monster that's hunting down and slaughtering the campers who are trying to escape it and ultimately defeat the maniac. What's innovative about this is that it's played in different phases. and the phases, you swap over who's the hunted and who's the hunter. So, for example, in the first phase, the uh, arriving at camp phase, the campers are trying to find keys to unlock cabins so they can hide inside the cabins and save themselves from the maniac. Then in the second phase, Act 2, now the campers are trying to stalk the maniac and kill him. And it keeps going back and forth until you get to the final chapter where you're trying to kill the maniac for good
0: or at least until the sequel comes out.
1: Certainly.
4: Right, and like it's it's interesting because like the 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 first two are hey, one versus many, the one is hunting, the second one is one versus many, the one is being hunted. Then in the third act, it's the maniac, right? the, the slasher is trying to kill a specific player and everyone else is trying to give that player enough information to survive and then in the fourth act the predestined is trying to hunt down the maniac right so it's it's one versus many you know back and forth but like the each each round is totally different from the previous rounds so there's a different goal or the mechanics changed relatively significantly.
0: It's nice because you know, like if I'm playing Fury of Dracula then I know for the next 90 minutes or however long the game runs, I'm always going to be the hidden one and everybody else is trying to find me. In this, you are getting sort of the flavor of multiple sides of the game.
1: Yeah, I totally forgot to mention that the maniac's got hidden (laughs) movements.
2: Well, sure.
0: I mean, if he's just walking down the street with a chainsaw, where's the fun in that, I ask you?
2: Hey, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is awesome.
3: Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, in this game, once again, is just it—it's dripping in theme um, and, blood. Mean, and blood, and blood. It, It—it—it's amazing how this kind of one v mini co op fits into that horror genre.
0: Yeah, it—it it is a—it is a good fit of theme for sure. I think we've discovered a theme that that you really like games that have good stories. I do. I can't I argue do. with that.
3: I—I um, I think this the most innovative part about this though is it takes all of these games that we've been talking about up to the point, especially these hidden movement games and puts them into one package.
1: Yeah. And just building off your point before how it's like um, these horror games tend to lend themselves or horror genre lends itself to this. It makes sense, right? Because in most horror stories, you've got one very powerful being of some sort and a whole bunch of weaker beings either running from it or maybe trying to destroy it. So that, that makes total sense. I never actually made that connection before.
4: Yeah, and the uh, each of each of the chapters can be played independently. Though the you should, like, for the best experience, you should play them all in a row, right? Because they chain together and they have effects on each other. If you play them in kind of a campaign mode, it's not like it's super long campaign or anything like that.
0: Yeah, like how long are the uh, the rounds? Are like 30, 45 minutes. Yeah, it's so
4: like in total, right? Of the game, it's like two and a half hours, maybe in total, right? If if you've never played before, probably shorter. If you've played before.
3: Which can be fatiguing. I mean, by that by that fourth act, I'm like, okay, wait a minute, what what are we doing now? The the predestined has to hunt down the the maniac, or or the, the other campers. That's right. That the predestined has to hunt down the other campers. Why are we running towards the man with the axe?
4: <laughs> well, the the expansion has two more chapters, so you want to do six oh, chapters, God. right? Oh, good, good.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, fun game. I don't know. I don't know if I'd if I'd go on that long with <laughs> it. And then uh, the last item we had on our list uh, of of one versus many games we want to talk about uh, is a little number called Not Alone. uh, Came out in 2016 by uh, Julaine Masson, published by Stronghold Games. And uh, this is basically... It's sort of a predator vibe, I guess. Um, you've got a group of, of uh, astronauts who have crash landed on an alien planet and there is something large and menacing trying to to lurk and, and figure out uh, where they are and murder them horribly.
2: Or completely failing at that. Well, that depends <laughs>
0: on who's playing the bad guy.
3: Right. And so this one is it's very small. It, it is a very quick game that gives the same feeling as these other 1B minigames. Uh, we've completed within a, uh, 30
1: minutes. Yeah, having never played before. <laughs> it's also very
4: compact, right? It doesn't take a lot of table space either.
1: But what, what I found interesting is uh, it's functionally both sides are hidden movement, right? Because the, the hunted are playing down cards face down. The hunter activates after that and puts down, or, or, sorry, the creature activates after that. So he still has no information to work off of other than the cards that have already been played
2: i mean it calls back to like a basic bluffing mechanism there's no history for any of it it's just i'm here now okay i'll be here and you're done so i mean, really really trims out the the long bits
3: yeah i think the 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 what the person who's playing the creature the one has to really be paying attention to where each of their the other players have gone which, which uh locations they've already utilized. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike. Versus <laughs> the players who are really just trying to run out the clock because they just need to survive for a certain number of turns. Yeah, they're 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 not gonna kill it. They're not gonna right. track
0: it down anyway. They just need to not die before the shuttle shows up.
3: Yeah.
2: One thing that we haven't really brought up that I think is one of the appeals of the one versus many is the game's you spend a lot of time playing simultaneously or working together on other people's turns. That means the games don't feel as long as they are because, I mean, the one is kind of sitting back waiting for the mini to do whatever the But, but
0: they're ideally doing. they're listening to figure out what they're up to.
2: Yeah, but totally. But the mini are all working together or in some cases, you know, simultaneously planning. So the games have a really kind of fast pace and such.
0: Yeah, that is, uh, that is a good aspect. Uh, another thing that I wanted to talk about is just uh, in terms of related topics, some of the, the gimmicks or the ways that these games are set up to keep the other players, keep the many from figuring out what the one is up to. I, I still remember in Scotland Yard there was basically a little hat brim that you could put down. So it was like a little cardboard visor. That you put so other people couldn't see where your eyes were when you were looking at the board. I don't know how many people actually wear that, but I think it's awesome.
1: But yeah, Fury of Dracula, actually the later editions, I haven't played the earlier ones, has its own separate map. So you don't have Dracula peering at certain parts of the map that become very obvious to other players. Right, and
0: one of the nice things they finally did in the third edition is that they gave Dracula a copy of the map upside down, but with the language printed right side up so that you could figure out where you were on the board without having to read upside down.
4: So last Friday has like a shield, and there's a there's a, a looky-loo hole for the shield that the the murderer is supposed to look out of to look at the board, so that the players cannot see where he's looking. It's just it's pure silliness. Is it exactly. <laughs> yeah, a painting with cutout <laughs> eyes? Exactly.
2: Please tell me It's a painting.
3: Now we didn't bring it up in this, but uh, Mysterium, which is a Almost like a it's more of a co-op. It, it, it's than a, it's one, a versus one with many. many. <laughs> um, but one of the promotional items that was released for Mysterium was actually this face shield mask that was very reminiscent of like the the Scream movie mask. Like it is the most ridiculous face shield ever.
4: Well, that makes sense, right? Like, in Mysterium, you're supposed to give the players literally no reaction as they're looking at the dreams they've gotten, and some players have trouble with that. So, here, let me put on my totally concealing mask so you can't see how I'm screaming at you that you're an idiot for picking the wrong thing over and over again. I can again. hear
2: your eyes rolling from here. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Sandy's always the ghost, and she just emanates it. She doesn't actually have to do the face. It's like... You're a terrible person. Yes. <laughs>
3: How
0: are you so horribly wrong? All On second the time?
3: thought, perhaps this is one versus one. <laughs>
0: you know what? I just hope you all fail.
4: <laughs> I'm gonna hunt you forever. Uh,
0: yeah, and then you uh, and then you go play Ghost Chase, which is uh, a sort of uh, you know kids' version of Scotland Yard,
2: with actually that card mechanism from uh, the second edition of *Fury Dracula*.
4: Right. I
2: think Ghost Chase really gave us that kind of. Trailed cards. Ah, good point. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. yeah,
0: see everything, everything weaves together. And that's why we made this podcast to help you guys follow these, these trails of, of board game things throughout their history. Uh, and then as usual, we want to wrap up by talking about our sort of favorites of the genre here. Um, and as I alluded to before, uh, Fury of Dracula, particularly the third edition is just, i think really the pinnacle of this kind of game design it's uh full of theme uh it it gives a lot of interesting options for both sides of the uh both sides of the screen and um i just uh, i will be happy to play it any anytime we can get a group of players for it
4: yeah i agree i think free ejacula you, is a great game i think there's in my mind there's no question that among the options like it's certainly a game i'd be more than happy to bring to the table at any point i have a certain uh love in my heart for tragedy looper mostly because of the time travel elements i just like a board game with time travel elements is just so fascinating And, and like the way the game actually tries to emulate the fact that you're going through this groundhog day type loop is is super fascinating to me so i think i really love that piece of the mechanic but i think it's it's a little too fragile of a game to really love. but And it's not quite fun. It's not quite <laughs> fun. But, like, it's it's. What it's are you, what conceptually are you, really interesting. Are you <laughs>
0: demanding that games be fun now? Come on.
1: I think that's another one for the, the future
0: podcast of games we really want to like. <laughs> yes.
1: Uh, I need to stop going third because I'm just going to repeat what everyone has, uh, said before me. But Fear of Dracula, definitely. Uh, it's probably my favorite with this one-versus-many mechanic. Um, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of hidden movement games in general, probably because I'm terrible at them. But Fury of Dracula, there's enough going on and there's enough engagement there because you have a lot of options that I find it really interesting. Uh, and then Not Alone, we I, I just played it for the first time today, and I definitely will be using this in a lot of large groups because it plays quickly and it teaches very quickly.
3: Yeah, I think I'm. I'm gonna diverge here a little bit. I'm gonna Yay. go with um, betrayal. Uh, betrayal, House on the Hill. Just it hit me at a time in my life, or especially in my board gaming career, that it is a game that I am always willing to go back and visit. Now, that being said, I can only take so much betrayal at a specific time because of that randomness. But if anybody were to offer a game of betrayal, I'm in.
4: Don't get me wrong, I am super excited for Betrayal Legacy. Oh, yes. It's going to be amazing. It,
3: it's going to be so good. Yeah,
4: uh, and the other nice thing
0: about Betrayal is that it's it's very easy to get non-gamers into. You can explain the rules in two minutes and, and get people on it. It's a great pickup game if you don't know of anything else to play.
1: You do have to be careful, though, because that can really ruin someone's experience when they end up being the traitor and they don't want to be the only person on their team. I've well, had that experience a couple times with new players. And- curses wow. curses are like that.
2: <laughs> I have not played Fury of Dracula. Third edition. I no no no. I okay. played okay, I was gonna I say. played first and second edition <laughs> okay. quite a bit. And never quite found that they were that amazing. So I'd go Fortress America. I suspect third edition Fury of Dracula would happily displace that in a second uh, after reading the rules. Well, clearly we need to get that one on the on yeah, the board. But so. of course Fortress America dudes on a map you get to kill things
0: little plastic hover tanks yes you
2: need little plastic tanks to make a good game
0: all right well uh there you have it folks i think that will wrap us up for today as always we want to hear more about what uh, your favorite one versus many games are and where we're horribly wrong and what you uh would like to hear us talk about next so please come check out our website which is ascentofboardgames.com or you can email us at ascentofboardgames at gmail.com our Facebook account, because Facebook is weird, is facebook.com slash ascentboardgames. They don't like the word of in there, apparently. Twitter is ascentofgames. Uh, apparently, ascentofboardgames is too long for a Twitter username. We try to be consistent, but the internet won't let us. Discord, though, is discord.ascentofboardgames.com, or you can find us on Instagram, which we don't have much on yet, but we're working on it, at instagram.com ascentofboardgames. Those are long and inconsistent and a pain to transcribe, so your best bet is probably just to go to our website, which, once again, is ascentofboardgames.com, and just click on the links there. We've got a poll for what we should do for our next episodes. We've got information on us. You can even see pictures of us and recognize that we all have great faces for podcasting. And um, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. You know, I'm just going to ignore that whole section because I don't really know what I'm trying to say there. So I'm just going to stop.